than prepare to take in such a profound concept as the Son of God, God the Son, dying on a cross, a shameful, uh, tortured way, laying down his life for the sins of the world, our sins. The thing that anchors us to you and gives us hope, your eternal life. May we be encouraged this morning as we consider the unfathomable love of God. In Christ's name, amen. I saw a fascinating video caught by security cameras of a robbery in progress, both the audio and video. They were in a cell phone shop there in southern Florida, a 20-year-old young lady managing the shop in the store alone at the time. An unidentified man pulls a gun and demands cash. It was what she said and did in response to this that made it national news. Quote, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to tell you about my Jesus, my God, before you leave. For five minutes, she tells him about the Lord. She says, he's changed my life. He can change yours. He's holding a gun. He can help you. God is real. Go to church. Talk to a pastor. I'm quoting from her. Christ is coming. There's no time for this. That was one of my favorite lines. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he starts to soften. He says, I shouldn't be doing this. I know it's wrong. I can't go through with this. I'm sorry. I'm leaving now. God has great things in store for you because of what you did for me today. And he left. Wow, is <laughs> right. Well, the last-minute change of heart on this would-be robber in his life he averted real potential disaster. You know, someone could have ended up critically injured or killed. He could have ended up a convicted felon with a criminal record, serving prison time for armed robbery. His life would never be the same, but all that changed Just in the twinkling of an eye, he just had a change of heart. It just, who can explain why? It just happened. Well, this morning's text, we're going to meet another thief, another robber, with a last-minute change of mind as well. Now, the robber in the cell phone shop, by changing his mind, avoids the wrath of society and temporary punishment, the robber on the cross, by changing his mind, avoids the wrath of the living God and escapes eternal punishment. We have come to really the pinnacle of the Bible, 66 books, 40 different God-inspired authors, written over a period of 2,000 years with really one summary verse For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes and trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have reached the verse that really is the summation of the whole point of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ laying down his life for the sins of the world. Some context for some of you who are just joining us without the advantage of the last couple weeks. The Last Supper is over. Jesus explains there that night that Judaism has reached its final day. There's a new covenant now, not made through the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. He himself, the Passover lamb. It is Passover after all. So the supper's over. The Garden of Gethsemane has come and gone. Jesus agonized in prayer at the simple thought of bearing the sins of the world. It produced the bloody sweat, and an angel from heaven came to minister to him. 
From there, the all-night brutal interrogation before the Jewish high court with their false charges and uh, intense police brutality, that's over. The whole night, Thursday evening into Friday morning, 12 midnight, all the way into the, the break of dawn, that's over. At that trial, Jesus declared himself equal to God as the Son of God coming on the clouds with great glory that every eye shall see. Well, they convicted him of that. And now it's early morning, Good Friday, good for us, bad for him. The Roman trial has come and gone. Pilate and Herod both pronounce him innocent. Pilate wanted to release him. He tried several weak attempts, but the crowd is now rioting, chanting, crucify, and Pilate caves in, as we know, and sentences Jesus to die. Of course, he releases Barabbas, a condemned felon, He goes free, and Jesus now has picked up the cross that Barabbas should have been on. Jesus will die in his place. As a picture, once again, of the maybe dozens of pictures that the Word of God gives us to show us the crux of the gospel. His life for ours. It's a trade. He's our stand-in before the wrath of God. And so the Roman trial is over, and he's had to hit the road and start to walk that four-tenth of a mile walk that we call the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering or of sorrows. He is carrying the crossbar by himself. Then he gets some help with that from a North African named Simon. He pauses, and he tells the weeping, excited mourners, to cry instead for those who reject him, for theirs is a uh, worse fate than his. And now they've stopped walking because they've arrived at their destination. It's nine o'clock in the morning, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed when they came to the place called the skull, from the Latin Calvaria, from the Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. Same word for Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar. This is a different, this is the cheap wine that comes at the end, toward the end of Jesus' suffering, not the drugged wine, which Jesus refuses at the beginning. If you are the king of the Jews, these soldiers are saying, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today. You will be with me in paradise. It's very moving. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I've been studying this all week long, and so my heart is a little bit tender toward these truths. Well, it's been said that there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say there are only two kinds of people in this world and those who don't. Luke belongs to the former. He shows us heaven's perspective that God thinks there are only two kinds of people in the world. Yes, there are 15,000 people groups and maybe 200 nations and 7,000 languages, but God sees it in two. Guilty and condemned, 
or guilty and pardoned. Two groups of people. Now this morning as we reflect upon these verses, we'll take a closer look at the two kinds of people in this world and how a simple change of heart, even if it's at the last second, can transfer you from the group doomed and condemned to the group forgiven and pardoned and destined for paradise. So as we kind of unfold what we have before us in the text, uh, let's do it this way. First, the Lord and his love. Because after all, it's not about the thief on the cross. It's about the Lord on the cross. But we love that thief because he's us. He's us. The Lord and his love is one. Two, the mockers and their hate. And three, the thieves and their respective attitudes, especially the one who gets saved. Well, number one, let's consider the great heart of God because it's revealed there on the cross. Here's a paraphrase. Jesus wasn't alone when they got to Calvary. There were two others, criminals condemned, slated to die alongside the Lord. When they arrived at Calvary, they crucified Jesus and the other two, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus was praying out loud, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what's going on here. The soldiers rolled some dice, as it were, to see who'd get this famous man's clothing. Now, so first I want you to notice that God is in control. God is sovereign, if you're taking notes. This crucifixion in God's mind's eye, happened before the foundations of the world. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this was already a done deal as far as God was concerned before the earth was formed. He already knew what was going to happen, already signed up to lay his life down on that cross. And so, you know, really, the rapid-fire prophetic fulfillments show who's in control. What do I mean by that? In just a couple paragraphs there, you have about four or five prophetic fulfillments from the Old Testament. That he would be numbered along thieves in his death, Isaiah 53, 12. The exact mocking, word for word, what they would exactly say, not just that, that he would be mocked, but quoting them word for word, Psalm 22 and verse 8, that they would cast lots for his clothing 1,000 years before Bethlehem. David is prophesying, Psalm 22, about getting his hands and feet pierced and that people are casting lots for his clothing. He's under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he's painting a picture of what would come some thousand years later. In other words, God is saying, look, this is my plan. Jesus is not a victim here. Uh, Things didn't go badly. They've gone quite well from God's point of view. Jesus will say, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. And so these prophetic Fulfillments right there in the text. It's like bing, 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 bing. Psalm 22, Isaiah 69, they gave me vinegar to drink. Just all of it, all already said and done by God. I'm in charge, not Pilate, not the Jews. I will use the evil of these men to redeem the world and hold them accountable because they have free will. They are doing what God wants to happen, and they will be held accountable because everybody has free will. But he is sovereign. And it's demonstrated there that God's plan is accomplished and not by him himself. Now check this out. The Old Testament says that this Messiah coming would be born of a virgin. Well, that means that he'd have to be equal to God because if you don't have human reproduction happening and you have a son born but there was no sexual intercourse my friend you you have a a man because he's coming out of a woman but you have something more than a man there 
because there was no biological father seed. The Holy Spirit of God filled the womb of Mary and the second person of the Godhead came out. Now, Isaiah 9 says, this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. So I want you to see not only is God sovereign, but it is God on the cross, which should make the cross of Calvary that much more profound. He is not a religious teacher. He's not a nice rabbi. He's not our model, our moral example. This is the second person of the Godhead laying down his life for the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Pay attention, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word, which has already been called God, becomes flesh and blood and lives among us. That being on that cross did not have his origin in Bethlehem. He is the eternal, co-equal, Son of God, God the Son. It's very easy to see that over and over again. And it's what makes everybody just drop their jaws wide open. John chapter 1, verse 3, By him all things were made. He made all things, visible or invisible. Colossians 1.15. He holds the whole world together, Jesus, by his mighty power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his image, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9, Jesus is the fullness of God in a human body. John chapter 14, Philip, on the night he was betrayed, Lord, show us the Father God. Give us a glimpse of God. And he says, Philip, how long have I been with you and still you don't recognize me? Anybody who's seen me has seen God the Father. Over And over and over again. Where does Jesus ever say that he is God? My question back to them is, where does Jesus ever not claim to be God? John chapter 10 and verse 33. Jesus just has a question. They pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. He says, for which of my good deeds are you about to kill me? He says, we're not going to kill you for a good deed, but you, a mere man, claim to be God, equal with God. That's the claim, and that's why they want to kill him. And Jesus said, look, if I, it's one thing to say it, but if I can do the things that nobody else has ever done before, perhaps you should put your faith in me. That's a, a real paraphrase of what he actually said to them. Any lunatic, megalomaniac can say, I am the Lord. We see it all the time. But then if he goes to a funeral... And he says, hey, you, sit up. And the guy sits up. We're going to stop and reevaluate things here. (laughs) The man on the cross is the God-man. You look into those big brown eyes. You're looking at the one who spoke and made the world. Make no mistake about that. Crucifixion, and there they just have it so plain. All four gospel writers, so plain. They don't go into the graphic physical sufferings like a lot of pastors do. The gospels just want to show you the significance of his death, not to move you to some kind of place of emotional being distraught about it. But some pastors can't resist. I will tell you just the, the, a, a mild description. Crucifixion was performed in many cruel ways, as many as could be imagined to hurt and humiliate a victim. The usual pattern, on the ground, the condemned person was bound with outstretched arms to the crossbeam by ropes or by nails. 
Then the beam was raised with the body and fastened to the upright post. About the middle of the post was a wooden block which supported the suspended body. Now, Jesus often said, the Son of Man, a phrase he used of himself, I, will be lifted up, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. In other words, the cross is the focal point of, the, of every human destiny, and from the cross is the great divide. You either go left or right, up or down, north or south, heaven or hell. It's the cross. I will be raised up, I will draw all men to me. Nice, the two thieves are on each side so that they can see and hear everything. They represent the two groups in the world. He will draw every living soul to the understanding that there's been a sacrifice in your place. Accept the payment or deny it. Everybody will see it that way. Death would come only slowly, To most of the crucified, usually only after several days, death resulted either from shock or painful process of suffocation as the muscles used in breathing suffered suffered increasing fatigue. Now that's as far as I'm going to go. I think we all kind of get the picture. It's very uncomfortable to have to talk about Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God, the Father, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross is the key to human history, to the world. It's the door. It's the great divide. You know, there's a great divide It's called the Great Divide. It's a 6,000-mile-long imaginary line that runs through the middle of the Americas. And from that line, the water either flows to the Pacific Ocean or to the Atlantic. That's the demarcation line. It's called the Great Divide. And my friend, the Great Divide for human destinies is the cross. You either embrace it And believe upon the one who is upon it, dying there for your sin, or you don't. And you either go left or right, up or down, heaven or hell, all based there. Notice his first words too. Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. Jesus will make seven statements. Luke will give you three. You know, Isaiah 53, he poured out his life unto death, speaking of Christ, and was numbered with the transgressors. To transgress means to step over the line. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, right away, that's what Isaiah says. He's come to pray for you and to be your uh, high priest, as it were. And the second, the spikes go in. The first words are fulfilling Isaiah 53. Father, forgive them. They don't really get what's going on here. I love J.C. Ryle's comment. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest begins to intercede. Father, forgive them. The word is to unbind them, loose them from the debt. Very interesting word used there. When Jesus is in the garden and they come to arrest him, he says, it's me you want. Let these go. And in the Greek, athemi, the same word to forgive, the same word he's using. It's me you want. Forgive them. You see, so many little plays on words to paint the picture. It's me that pays the price. You're scot-free. Fly. Go. Live your life. It's all on me. You don't have to fear one bit of dread because I've paid it all for you. Now live in my love. 
a demonstration of God's grace. Now look, who is he praying for, Father, forgive? Well, certainly the Jews that condemned him, and certainly the Romans who carried it out, and ultimately everybody whose sins get applied to his account. Father, forgive them, and look at the grace of God and learn from it and model it in your own life when men are doing a lot less than putting spikes through your hands and feet. Father, forgive them, painting them in the best light, for they really don't know what they're doing. Come on. They really don't know what they're doing? Let's talk about this a little bit. The Pharisees have seen the miracles. They were in the Capernaum synagogue when the man stretches forth his withered hand. They were sitting there in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus tells a lame man, I say to you, son, arise. They were sitting right there. They've seen a lot of miracles. Jesus sent the lepers to whom? Go and show yourselves to the priests so that they can say and and demonstrate that you are well again. Oh, these Pharisees have heard his claims. They know he's claimed to be God. They've seen the miracles. There's enough going on. I like what one writer said. While they certainly didn't grasp the enormity and gravity of exactly what was going on, everyone involved had enough knowledge to condemn them to hell. Come on. But look at Jesus' heart for them. Look, I'd rather even my fiercest of enemies have one last chance before God and paint them in the best possible light. Maybe it's just they don't really fully understand, Father. Just give them a second chance. Wow. That's awesome. Come on. I mean, I started thinking, what do they really know? Do they really not know what they're doing? Come on. Uh, They know his word is powerful. How about the, the soldiers? Don't know what they're doing? They just come from the garden, for crying out loud, where Jesus comes to them. And they say, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And boom, they go to their faces. And then they see Peter, bad aim, cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus picks it up, dusts it off, puts it back on. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing? Shouldn't that have given you a little pause there? How about in John 7? The guards, same guards, come out to arrest him. They come back with empty-handed. And the Pharisees say, where is he? Did he get away? And they said, have you heard him speak? No one speaks like this man. The guards. The guards who are standing there saying, hey, save yourself. Come on down, king of the Jews. Don't totally believe that technically they did not know what they were doing. They fully didn't understand it totally. But look. My friends, they knew a lot, just like everybody, just like our our wonderful pygmy friends in the, the jungles that our unbelieving friends love to say, well, what about them? You know what? They've got a conscience. They've got a God-given conscience that tells them you should not kill people while they're sleeping. You should not lie. You should not put your spear through somebody's head. They've got a conscience. They know when they do wrong. God gave us the universe, the creation. He says, look around. He gave you a human psyche and personality and spirit. How else do you think you got here? The own, our own souls know that there's another because we are and exist. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, men are without excuse. So it doesn't matter Whether you know a lot or you know a little, you know enough. And that knowledge will take you to hell, or if you repent, it will take you to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. (laughs) I mean, if everybody was cool, and everybody's going to die and go to walk into the light and feel this wonderful light and warm light, no matter how you lived your life, You could die blaspheming Jesus with your last breath, but you could walk into this marvelous light and feel this warmth and not be afraid of dying anymore. 
It's not about the Bible. Why, why would Jesus have to do that if that were the case, that everybody can go in and just praise God, die, and everybody's cool? That is not the effort to say that everybody's cool. You just die and everything's cool. Don't worry about it. That is an effort that says, dear God, avoid the destiny of hell. Avoid that because that's why he did that. I love this last little phrase that we'll move on. Warren Wiersbe, we must not conclude from Jesus' prayer that ignorance is a basis for forgiveness or that those who sinned against Jesus were automatically forgiven because he prays. This is Jesus' heart, to see people in the best possible light and to practice what he preaches. He'd rather see evil men turn and be saved rather than destroyed, even if that is including his most vicious enemies. All right, the mockers and their hate. Here's a paraphrase of 35 to 38. Many people stood around gawking. The leaders were making faces and mocking him. He saved so many lost souls. Poor guy can't seem to save himself. The soldiers joined in with the catcalling as they put wine vinegar to his lips. If you are what this sign declares you to be, the king, save yourself. All right, so you have two groups acting out. The Roman soldiers are mocking and the religious leaders are spewing their hate. The Greek word, ekmukterizo, which means to ridicule, to mock, literally to turn up the nose at, to make rude gestures with your face. Well, it sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and you better know, and Jesus knew, that it's not the mocking of the soldiers so much as the diabolical inspiration behind those bad boys, the demons from hell. Hey, remember me? If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's me again. Come on down, save yourself, big boy. Come on, show everybody your big kingly power. Well, two things. The Passover lamb can't save itself or the household dies. That's one thing the Passover lamb cannot do because it's the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb can't stop from bleeding and dying because it's by the blood and death of the lamb painted that blood upon the doorpost that death passes over. So if it's the one thing you cannot say to the Passover lamb is don't die, don't bleed. Because if you don't die and you don't bleed, then everybody in the house dies. So number one, he must resist this temptation because if he doesn't, we are damned. Number two, if Jesus did come down off the cross, they'd find another way to explain it away they're condemned by their own words he saved others oh really how'd you know that you you got some testimonies oh yeah Lazarus raised from the dead maybe you know the greedy little chief tax collector used to be called Matthew Levi now he's keeping different kind of books so walking around recording everything He's not so much into money, but he's into a different master. Now, do you, do you know about him? See, you know, they, they have enough reason. If Jesus came off of the cross, as he did some miracles, what did they say? Oh, you know how you did that? You did that by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the demons. You see, my friend, when people say, you know what? I just need a little bit more something. I need a miracle. I need to see something. You know, this faith thing. No, 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 no. If you do not believe what your own conscience is telling you, what creation is screaming, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. Your conscience, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner. If you can't believe the declaration of the word of God, the Bible says nothing will stop you, nothing will save you, nothing. Do you remember Luke chapter 16? God lifts the veil and shows us the afterlife in a man who has perished. And he says across the gulf, 
to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, look, I am in agony in this flame. I realize this is my lot, but I've got five brothers. Send Lazarus, raise him from the dead. Let Lazarus go and tell my brothers about this awful place so that they don't come here. Abraham says, they've got the word of God, my friend. If they do not repent at the word of God, there will be no miracle. Even somebody sitting up in a coffin will not be enough for them. So watch out, you who are visiting, you who think, oh, you know, when I, I'll get around to it when something convinces me. If you're not convinced by the declaration of the gospel, watch out because you're going to wait a long time. Let me prove this to you. The sun's about to go out for three hours. It cannot be an eclipse because at Passover, it's full moon. An eclipse, a solar eclipse, is, is impossible with a full moon. The sun's going to go out. The earth is about to shake big time. Rocks are going to be split. The veil in the temple, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick, weighing 4 tons, taking 300 priests to carry it, will be torn in two from top to bottom. The graves are about to be open, and dead believers will be raised and spread the gospel throughout Jerusalem. The angel will appear, the rock will, the stone will be rolled away, and the soldiers will go to the Pharisees and tell the whole story, and not one of them repents. That they are the same guys who turn up in Acts chapter 3, persecuting the disciples for the same allegiance to whom? To Jesus Christ. You see? Let him come off the cross, then we'll believe. Of course you will. You will not. Look at all the miracles. And not one says, after all of those miracles yet to come in the, in the text, none of them are enough. Because once you decide, I want my life to remain unaffected, I wish to be in complete control of my destiny, I will live as I will live and not bow the knee, nothing's going to change that. The thieves, lastly, the thieves and their respective attitudes. Well, did you notice in Matthew 27 something that a lot of people miss? Let me quote it for you, verse 44. It's the same parallel passage. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. There's only two. Let me read what Matthew and Mark say again. In the same way, the robbers, plural, heaped abuse on him. Hmm. At the beginning, when they are crucified, the two robbers are in the same boat. They're in the same category. Guilty and condemned. But something is going to happen here. The word robber, by the way, kakulas in the Greek, means criminal or evildoer. Matthew and Mark use a different word than Luke. Leistes in the Greek. It means armed robber, not a thief. So we know that these two probably killed somebody in a robbery because that's why they're dying. Luke 10, remember the guy who uh, assaults somebody, a traveler on the uh, Jericho Highway, and leaves him half dead? It's the same word. So these are the two guys. Now, what are they saying? They start out by saying, hey, we could use a savior about now. Big guy, come on. Do your magic, man. Come on, you're supposed to vanquish Rome. And look, Rome's having their way. The word Luke describes them is blasphemeo, which means to blaspheme, to disrespect, to insult God. Now, let me just kind of go on a bunny trail here a little bit. Some people think it's okay to be angry with God, to say whatever you want, 
Because God's a big God and God's very graceful. And go ahead, get mad and let him have it. I've heard this for 31 years. I had a friend at seminary who told me one day, you know what, I just got so ticked. I went out into the open field and I just cussed God out. And he kind of said it like, I got that off my chest. It was so cathartic. It was just like, now I feel better. And I called him a fool. Are you a fool? He is God. You can be disappointed, my friend, that things aren't going your way. You can be disillusioned in what he disallows you. But for you to point your sinful, weak anger and disdain at the living God, that doesn't seem very smart to me. Direct your anger where it should go at your own sinful choices that have brought on most of your problems. Amen? I still love you. <laughs> and I hope you still love me. So, don't, don't do that. One of these fools is beginning to see the light. What changed him? The regal way Jesus is handling himself? Is it the love in his voice when he's praying, Father, forgive them? Is it his own suffering? You know, he's, he's probably realizing this is it. Wow, what a way to go. I'm really going to die here. I mean, it's coming. It, it, they say that most conversions don't happen on a soft and easy couch. I mean, is his own suffering uh, whittling away at his hard heart? Well, whatever it is, He's seeing the light. And now, as Colossians 1 says, for he rescued us, God, from the, for God rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's going from group A to B. So we want to pay attention because here's a guy who wasted his life doesn't do much to deserve it, and suddenly, instead of dying and going to hell where he belongs, he's going to go to group B, guilty but pardoned, and with Christ in eternal life. Here's the paraphrase. Thief on the left, let's say, I've assigned them. You know, I don't think it says this in the, in the scriptures, but I've given them left and right. Thief on the left keeps the venomous tirade flowing. King Jesus, he mocks. That was the last straw. The thief on the right now opens his mouth in defense of the Lord. Are you crazy? Aren't you the least bit worried about standing before God? We're all going to die. We deserve it, but this man's innocent. Jesus, save a place for me in that kingdom of yours. Jesus says to him, you won't have long to wait. Today, you, me, paradise. Hmm. Did the other thief go, glory, hallelujah? You know he did. You know he did. Jesus has drawn these men, and now they decide. And one of them just has a change of heart. The word repent means change of heart, change of mind. That's all God asks. His first words of ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That's all I want from you. Well, this guy's hit the jackpot. Let's look at his words, which are a symptom of this change of heart. Let's look at it. Number one, he believes there's a God because he says he fears him. <laughs> you know, and he wonders why this other God guy doesn't. He believes that life continues after death. We're headed that way, he says. He believes he's guilty. He confesses that guilt. We're getting what we deserve. I own this. I deserve this. I did what they said I did. He didn't. He believes that Jesus is who he claimed to be, more than a man, a king. He believes Jesus can save him. This battered man who is marred beyond human recognition. Look at the faith. And mind you, this guy's believing before the darkness, before the earthquake, before the veil, before the bodies, before the centurion at the foot of the cross says, oh, 
Truly, this was a son of God. Oh, all before that. This man, what is that about group B that sets us apart from the whole rest of the world that's going to go down the wide road? Make every effort to enter through the narrow way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go in that way. What is it that happened to me and to you that took us off the wide road with the many? Look, and put us on this little tight little road with one quarter of the world's population. What was it? What happened to him? Just a blink, this magic little Who can put your finger on it? A calling, a whisper. Uh Aha! 1979, June 3rd. There's a lot of guys in that bar that day. I heard a voice. Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? I walked out of the bar with my brother, as I've told you a hundred times. And instead of walking back in the bar... And shaking it off, I walked away and said to the Lord, who I barely even knew, had never been to church a day in my life, never again, out loud, knowing he heard me. From where? There was no Christian, no open Bible, no church. What is it that makes us saved and them not You can't put your finger on it. It's mystical. It's supernatural. They're both there. They're both feet away. They're both hearing the same thing. One says no. One says yes. One goes to heaven. One goes to hell. Just like Joseph, who is a type of Jesus, when he's in the jail, did you notice this? A guy on his left, a guy on his right. One guy lives, one guy dies. It's a picture again. Why? Why the wine bearer, the cup bearer? Why not the baker? One believes and one doesn't. But why? The love of God. The grace of God. The luckiest man alive. Thief on the right, me, you. The last second, tick, 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 the gate's opening. The flames, you can see the flames. The last second, deathbed conversion. It's in the Bible. It happens. The only problem is not everybody gets a two-minute warning. You see, our beloved sister in the Lord who went to be with him last year, Kathy O'Daniel just went to pick up daughter at Annalee. <laughs> Driving back on a road we all drive. Thinking about dinner and the song on Caleb. Gone. No time. No time. My next door neighbor, there was a commotion last week on Saturday night around 11 o'clock. A few days ago, I walked by. And somebody said, hey, if you see somebody hanging around, here's my cell phone. I need you to call it. They're, mo- they're moving out today. And I said, what, what was that all about? She, she said, oh, you didn't know he died. The husband died. How old was he? 38. He just died in his sleep. He went up to lay down and died. What happened? Enlarged heart. Nobody knew. You see, sometimes we know. And sometimes we don't. So to put that off is really not a wise idea. I really like uh, this. Samuel Johnson was fond of quoting an encouraging epitaph for those who despair. The image of is a man falling off a horse in his death. And here's what he liked to say. Between the stirrup and the ground, I asked for mercy and mercy found. So 
you know, he's on his way to die off the horse, and in between he calls out to God. And God says, that's enough. Today, you, me, paradise. I don't know, baptism? Nope. No church attendance? Nope. Nothing, just trust? Yep. They come running to him in John 6. They say, oh, Master, tell us what must we do to uh, do the works of God? And Jesus says, believe in the one he sent. The Philippian jailer sees the doors fly open and the handcuffs fall off. And he goes, gentlemen, how must, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord and you'll be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me. Okay. Eternal life. The same eternal life that Billy Graham gets. Now about reward added to eternal life that's free to everybody. I don't know about reward added. But I do know he gets the basic plan. And everybody in this room would say, you know what? As long as I get the basic plan, ah, I'm, I'm cool. I don't need the LX or whatever. The DX is fine. Amen? Let me tell you about a last-minute deathbed conversion that I witnessed with my own eyes. I, I mentioned in my sermon that this is about eight years ago or so, I mentioned in my sermon that I had uh, uh, had lymphoma once and that I'm cured now. And a man on the way out said, I've got a friend. He's not a believer. He's in Kaiser, this one right here. And uh, he's got lymphoma or something like that. Maybe you could go visit him. I went from church. I felt, boy, bing, I need to be there. <laughs> and I went and visited him. And I met him, and I spent an hour or two with him. And then I went back on Monday and Tuesday, and I kept hearing about a wife, but I I never ran into her until the third day. He was doing fine. I was talking to him about the Lord. He's like, yeah, I've never become a Christian, but I'm really open. I've been listening to this person on on television, and I'm, I'm very open, but I have not yet. When I went to see him the third time, he was in intensive care. I said, well, what happened? He was just fine. The nurse said, he's taking a turn for the worse. Nobody really knows why. It was sudden. And he's still conscious. Now his wife is there, whose name is Fran. Our Fran. Fran Boardman. And I said, you know, Chuck, we've been talking about the Lord, and you're in ICU now. Would you like to accept him as your Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, I would. Really, like, wow, a wow, yes. (laughs) And I said, let's pray. And we started to pray, holding hands with Fran, her husband, and me. And Fran interrupts me in the middle of the sinner's prayer. And Fran says, me too, me too. I I need to say this prayer. I said, okay, let's all say this prayer together. And we all did. Hours, hours, we watched the monitor. I watched, I was in the room. He died. Just flatline. And I know, wow, he's alive. Last second. He gave his life in his 60s, perhaps, ready to retire. It was kind of sad, of course. I did a funeral. People got saved at the funeral and started coming to our church. There have been a dozen people who have been affected by his coming to the Lord and, and though he never said a word for the Lord or but his life, giving his life over. And Fran was there with, from the DMV. And remember, all the DMV ladies started coming to church. It was so awesome. And then, uh, you know, whenever you can get a DMV person saved, it's a good thing. <laughs> the lines are a lot shorter. Now, every time I walk in, I hate to tell you this, and I, I, I hate to say this, every time I walk in to this day, I walk into the, and I try to not, I, I, I try to avoid this, but I walk in and they just, and they, pat, they just call me over and I just step in front of everybody. <laughs> it's so difficult to do. But 
I just forced myself. <laughs> Can I tell you one more quick one? It's a sad one. I'm working at a, a dinner theater as a waiter, and I'm witnessing to this little old lady who's obviously an alcoholic, and the Lord put it on my heart to sit with her. It's about 11 o'clock at night. We're closing up, and I sat down. I've told you this story before. I sat down, and I said, Rita, boy, I've got to be real clear with you tonight. There's a God. He loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. She said, you know, I, I, I don't want to hear another word about this Jesus. And she stood up, and she went to the manager. And the manager came to me and said, you are not to mention Jesus again to anybody. And she went home. In the morning, they said to me when I came in, did you hear what happened to Rita? She died. She went home and died. Gone. Her last words, maybe? Tell that young man never to say the word Jesus to me again. What is it, folks? <laughs> one says, yes. And one says, never again. Glory, hallelujah. Heaven and hell. That's the way it's laid out. Choice is yours. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for making it as easy as calling on the name of the Lord, humbling ourselves, admitting we're sinners, opening our hearts. You make it so easy. Uh, the, the nightmare of hell is knowing how easy it would have been. And so, Father, we thank you for your grace that transfers us from one group to the living group with a better destiny, paradise. That's awesome. God, thank you that you don't care who we are or what we've done, only that we believe and trust in your saving love through your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. I'm not going to plead with anybody. The case has been made. And I will offer the invitation that Christ makes. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never accepted Christ or confessed your sins, come to know him as your Lord and Savior. And you'd like to do that this morning. It's as simple as, really, honestly, it's as simple as saying, remember me in your heart and meaning it, yielding. We often say, you know, the thief on the cross didn't do much. Well, had he gotten off that cross, you'd see a changed man. But not because he's trying to get heaven, because he's already received heaven freely. Good deeds are an outward expression of something that's already happened. So, if that's you, you want to make the switch, put your faith and trust in the living God, and just slip up your hand and we'll pray with you. It's usually a couple people who don't have Christ in their heart for sure. If you raise your hand, we'll say the sinner's prayer together. Give you a Bible. You can start your new life as a Christian. Okay, I see you. Thank you. He looked very worried. He wanted me to see him. That's a good sign. All right, let's pray with our brother. Everybody repeat after me, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die and be punished. Remember me. Save a place for me. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to your care. And our new brother, whoever else prayed that prayer meant it in their hearts. Father, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, open his eyes to the truth of what just happened, the hope of eternal life, the place called paradise by Jesus. Beautiful, glorious, peaceful, satisfying place of purpose and goodness. 
Father, thank you for making it so easy. Now help us pick up our crosses and follow after you, denying ourselves and living a resurrected life in Christ, newness of life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want the brother who raised his hand to come meet me and pray with me. We'll give you a Bible. Other than that, God bless you guys. We'll see you Wednesday or Sunday. God bless your week.